Why, uh, <clears throat> talk a bit or emphasize daily life on a retreat such as this. In every retreat, people will tell you to be mindful, not just of sitting and walking, uh, but of everything. Uh, yet we're emphasizing that, I believe, even more than that. And the reasoning is very simple. Uh, we've gone into some of this. Uh, having watched over the years, typically, when we come into meditation, we're drawn to it. Um, very often, if not always, some kind of unsatisfactoriness or suffering in our life has prompted us to look into this, to see if there's something there. And very often, that suffering has to do with relationship or lack of it outside. And then we come here uh, to heal. Uh, So we come here to, to heal our suffering And then sometimes it's like a bad joke because, uh, yeah, we're here to heal our suffering. Probably we want peace and bliss and things of that sort. And then what happens? But some teacher says, that's great. We're glad that you came here out of your suffering. That's that's probably the best motive. Um, And we're going to work on that. Take a look at your suffering. Well, wait a minute. I didn't come here to do that. That's what got me to come here. I want to get free of it. Yes, how do you get free of it? You don't go around it or hop over it or dig under it or sweep it under something or any of those uh, uh, attempts. Uh, But rather, in this approach, what the Buddha is saying is that suffering is a noble truth not because suffering itself is noble. If that was so, uh, the poor world with so many suffering people uh, would be just crowded with nobility. It isn't. Suffering is suffering. It wears us down. It's discouraging. It ages us prematurely. It cuts off creativity. It creates all kinds of problems. But suffering in this approach is a doorway to liberation. And that's a re-education. That's asking us to learn something new. Because uh, typically, and I know that's changing, I think this approach, it's not just from the Buddha, has started to affect all kinds of uh, aspects of culture. Psychotherapy, groups, and so forth, new age activities. Where people recognize it. You see it in, even on TV shows. That you have to face what's going on. Uh, so what the Buddha is saying is that, look, uh, this re-education has to do with a new way of relating really to everything. But finally, the main reason that uh, Dharma teachings exist is because we humans have a lot of suffering. From the outside, external, wounds and accidents and floods and so forth. And of course, what we can do a lot about is from the inside. Uh, and that happens everywhere. It's not limited 
to relationship outside of here. Uh, what we were, what uh, Michael and I are attempting to do is to convey a perspective uh, which really uh, values contemplative life. Come to retreats like this. We still do them personally. We still sit and we do our own personal retreats. This is not in any way to undercut that, but rather to bring the rest of your life up to that level. Uh, where you begin to see that it's just life, finally. I mean, if you looked at this, let's say someone came from Mars and knew nothing about the Buddha or any of the things that we've been talking about, and they just looked around, this would just be one social situation among many. It's a stage set. It's set up, it's a beautiful one, it's very, very helpful. It's helped lots of people. But it's life, life life unfolding in a retreat setting. Now, the mind has a way of concocting and creating and investing and imbuing all kinds of situations with its own meaning. Uh, And some of that can pull us away from the rawness, the nakedness of just life. Because finally, that's all there is, as far as I can tell. Uh, And so our hope uh, is that by doing some of that practice here where it's so much easier that this is like a simple uh, village for seven days where uh, we're all pulling in the same direction. And the kinds of trouble that we get into uh, being irritated because uh, uh, the meal is late, that didn't happen in this retreat. But sometimes, uh, for one reason or another, the meal can be delayed five or ten minutes and you can see a kind of Uh, can you practice with that? It's small, very small stuff. Or you're waiting for an interview and it's going overly long and you hear in the interview room laughing going on. You know, and here am I sitting in the most important suffering on the whole planet, (laughs) mine, and they're having a ball in there. So there are little ways, just because we're people, we're thrown together. Uh, We didn't leave. We brought everything we are here. It's all here. And so the hope is that by, uh, first of all, we have the advantage of so much silence and sitting, which enables the mind to be clearer, more calm, and more able uh, to do what's being suggested in all the activities that make up a day here. We're hopeful that You've been doing that. Tomorrow, uh, there'll be a, a whole discuss- Q&A here. We'll talk about just that aspect of the retreat, yogi jobs and nothing too small, everything, uh, and give, find out how it's been going for you. Okay. Um, the hope is that when the time comes to go home on Saturday for most of us, uh, that at least in some small way, Practicing with this attitude, because a lot of what I'm, it's a change in attitude to begin to see uh, life this way. And in many cases, it's quite radical because we lack conviction that what I'm talking about could be anywhere near as important as uh, sitting in a uh, dignified, upright posture and going into deep meditation. 
And I, I've mentioned that I have a friend or two who have fallen from grace with very, very d- deep practices. And o- fortunately, openly trying to understand how this could happen, how a person could go away on long retreats, many of them, and really do a lot of wonderful work and become a wonderful teacher, person, and yet cause so much suffering. And finally, for example, uh, tremendous courage on retreats, this particular person I'm thinking of, Uh, tremendous conviction of the value of it. So this is someone uh, who's really committed and committed to teach everything. As he puts it, he bought the whole farm. Okay. But then what it came down to is sitting at the other end of the, of the breakfast table with his wife, uh, he doesn't have conviction that what goes on there is in any way as important as what goes on in some freezing cold monastery somewhere where there's a heroic quality to it. Turns out that it may be more heroic to face your wife <laughs> or your husband or whatever friend, whatever. Uh, so I'm in Thailand, uh, a number of times, the monks, there were some of the Western monks when I was there, would talk about the, the challenge of living in the forest and the difficulties of living in the forest. Uh, and finally, I got a little tired of hearing that with one of them. Uh, and I said, we have a forest too in Cambridge. You know, uh, it's, it used to be called the asphalt jungle. There was a... Uh, it's not easy to be a layperson. There are different challenges and hardships, as you all know. And when you go into the forest, there are too. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is prior to any of these forms, magnificent and brilliant and as inventive as they've been, and no doubt helping countless people get free, this form, I'm all for it. Long-term sitting, retreats, sit at home, the contemplative life, to whatever degree you wish to join it. And yet, if you uh, relate to it in a certain way, it gets divorced from the rest of your life. And as lay people, I don't think we can afford that uh, at all. I think that the practice becomes so very, very limited. Uh, I just want to emphasize this. Um, Self-knowing. sounds obvious. You're doing it. We've all been doing it. You look into yourself and you get to know yourself. And in all the groups, of course, that's what we've been talking about. People are talking about how it is for them. And then we go around and try to understand that a lot better. And each one of us, in some, to some degree, is discovering more and more about themselves. We're finding out something about ourselves. The emphasis on it being a verb in the active present is that the value is in the seeing, in that moment, uh, not so much in storing up knowledge about ourselves and then uh, adding that, a new chapter, to the book, The Story of Me and My Life. Not doing that. Of course, that happens anyway. The mind uh, remembers. Uh, So self-knowing has a direct, immediate, fresh application, and then it's over. And then there's the next moment. Um, It's interesting in that at first it starts out being what it sounds like. 
you getting to know yourself, self-knowing. And as the practice ripens and matures, those terms seem to just decompose, and they really don't apply. The language doesn't do it justice. Self-knowing, two words. Um, It turns out, and I think we've hinted at it, that finally there's just the knowing. And I'd like to to get to some of that. Um, First, as part of this re-education stuff, I'm going to come at it from a few angles this evening. When there's suffering, as there definitely is for all of us, even on this retreat, uh, what we're attempting to do is learn a new way of relating to that dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Self-knowing is all about our relationship to. If you want to know about your relationship to nature, take a look. When you're in nature, you can see what your relationship is. Just become aware of yourself. If you're Uh, you walk through the most beautiful part of nature and you're just thinking all the time uh, and you're never open to it, how about your relationship to your body? These are all right here for us to learn, just very ordinary kinds of learning. Relationship to objects, relationship to money, relationship to sex, relationship to friends. There's no end to it. In short, you learn about self-knowing comes about through living. It doesn't all happen on the cushion, although some very important work gets done on the cushion. When it comes to dukkha, uh, typically, again, if this doesn't apply to you and those of you who have been practicing for a while, you already know this. Um, We don't start out, or we do start out, our, our attitude towards our relationship to any suffering we might have, psychological. There are many ways in which we deal with it. One is we repress it. Another is we deny it. Another is we postpone it. Another is we deflect our attention, put ourselves somewhere else. Uh, We cope with it. We put up with it. We drown in it. These are what we do and variations on this. Uh, There are subtle ones. In Cambridge, there's a big one. We explain it. (laughs) Freud said, Jung said, the Buddha said, and some of the explanations, or even I said, some of the explanations are so satisfying because they're so intelligent that it feels as if our job is done. We haven't even begun. We've just translated into other words which are reassuring that we understand what's going on. And at one level we do, but it has very little transformative power. Um, <clears throat> so even for our remaining days here, a day and a half or so, uh, even the smallest inconvenience, the smallest bit of upset, uh, of uh, whatever it is, don't overlook it. Because often uh, it's very difficult to look at really big kinds of suffering, fear, uh, right off. Because it's very powerful. And we get overwhelmed by it. Uh, of course, part of what we're doing is we're, we're training mindfulness to be steady and strong and unwavering so that finally it does not get pushed around by anything that comes in front of it. When mindfulness is pretty weak when we begin, as with any skill when you begin it, it's shaky. Then here's mindfulness. 
uh, of strong emotion comes along, it's like a tidal wave. It just washes over you. But the day comes if you keep practicing in all these small ways, moment by moment, breath by breath, falling asleep, waking up, being unconscious, waking up again, is that mindfulness can become unwavering. And whatever is in front of it, it doesn't push it around. And you can see that's already an enormous uh, step. It's already liberation. If the mind is that steady uh, and at home with whatever turns up, and that's, that's what we're learning to do. We've been learning how to receive the breath. Now can we receive everything else that happens to us in our life as a starting point? Dukkha's the big one. Suffering's the big one. That's why I'm, I want to spend a bit of time on it. Uh, and then go into this self-knowing, uh, I hope in a way that's useful. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, the levels of learning, because with this approach, what's being said is the Buddha is often likened to being a great uh, physician, world physician, also, of course, a great teacher or edu- educator. And what is happening is we're being re-educated if we're, if we're open to it, uh, <clears throat> so that the quality of our life uh, follows from that, because self-knowing uh, is strongly related to suffering. I don't want to make it an exact mathematical equation, but the degree to which you don't know yourself is going to be a huge amount of suffering. And knowing here doesn't just mean you have rich set of ideas about your problems. It's, it goes to, it starts there, and that's very, very useful. Let me give you an example. Uh, a number of years ago, my father died. And uh, we were, I have a very close feeling with my father, always have had. We haven't always agreed on things, but the love has never faltered. Uh, a very strong personality. Uh, I was probably one of the few people who could get along with him <laughs> steadily, with a few exceptions. And he died at, at age 90, so he had a very full life. And I thought I did grieving. And I thought, sure, I, I've been grieving and I know what to do. Um, even was audacious enough to write a book on it, which I now look back on and, you know, sort of a little embarrassed. I don't know if, we, if anyone is ever going to become an expert on, on it. Maybe some people, but not this one. Um, and then I followed just a tradition of, uh, of his ashes uh, being on an altar that I have at home for about 40 days and would reflect on it. Um, uh, at the end of every sitting, I would look up and there'd be this urn of ashes, and I'd realize... That's what's left of Nathan Rosenberg in there. And that was his last teaching to me. Son, it's going to happen to you too. Uh, and so I did that. It was, it was very, very helpful. It's only helpful if you're ready for it. If you're having a hard time right now, a lot of sadness and depression, don't do this kind of meditation. It'll just make things worse. worse. Um, and I went through sorrow. I went through tears. Um, thought I did a pretty good job, very good job. And the 40 days were up. He wanted his ashes uh, deposited in the Atlantic Ocean because that's where he was happiest. Uh, we grew up in, near Coney Island, 
Brooklyn and the Atlantic Ocean. We spent some very happy times in the summers there on the ocean. Fine. I took the little urn, and I had a personal retreat for myself for, I think it was about a week. So I emptied the urn into the Atlantic Ocean, went back to this friend's cabin, and started my retreat. I say that because there's tremendous value in the sitting. You can accomplish certain things that are hard to do otherwise on small things and big things, but let me go into a big one. And I sat, and I just did what we're doing here, breathing in, breathing out, and so forth. And suddenly there was immense sorrow. Uh, I'm using words. The words are going to be tremendously inadequate. Um, I felt the pain of loss like I hadn't allowed myself to feel, apparently, up until then. More important, not more important, but remember, I also was not a beginner. Um, The awareness was so red hot. I mean, I was there after depositing my father's ashes in the Atlantic Ocean. I didn't think I was going to have a picnic sitting there for a week by myself. But I I wasn't prepared for exactly the way in which this happened. We never are. Life is not the way we think it's going to happen. When it came up, there was tremendous sorrow and a feeling of incredible vulnerability and betrayal. This is an an odd one. And these words are are really inadequate. I'm trying to uh, give you a sense of where the practice can go. And it's built up from small moments that we're all doing here. They all contribute. Uh, Finally, though, I was able, and this is the best I can do with language. I've been struggling to find a way of putting this into a language for a few years. And this, at, at this point, is the best I can do. It felt like what happened was my consciousness got transported right into the fact of vulnerability. The consciousness was transported right into the fact of vulnerability. It was not an idea. I have to use a word, which is an idea. It wasn't an idea. And um, and was I was totally with that and felt the vulnerability. Not only that, for some reason, and it wasn't thinking, I got that it wasn't just that my father was vulnerable, it was that everyone is, each and every one of us. And the the Buddhist teaching changed for me, even though I'd read it, studied it, practiced it, even taught it. Uh, It went dramatically deeper. Uh, The learning that went on uh, was at a level that I hadn't even come close to. The betrayal was I had a childish, uh, childish is the best word I can come up with, uh, notion, which I didn't know I was carrying even until this my father was 90, that my father was invulnerable. Uh, He was a very strong personality, physically and otherwise. And it was childish in that it's like, daddy is always going to be here. Uh, And I didn't know I still had traces of that. And so that when I finally got the full impact of bye-bye, gone, this is it, uh, what I was betrayed by was my own ignorance my own gullibility, my own refusal or inability to face exactly what was happening and uh, kind of been taken in by my mind. 
And this is a childish kind of delusion, which I still had as a grown man. Uh, that too, it, it's as if the fact of vulnerability and the fact of betrayal, betrayal here is not the best word. I, I, was not, this, I don't have anything better right now, but it was something that I, I came out of nowhere. Uh, it's as if my father was a representative, representing the entire human race. And again, this is words. I was not thinking this this way. It just, what came through was something much beyond my father and myself. And it was a, a general sense of, whoa, so this is our condition, we humans. And it changed my practice, changed my life for the better. But of course, it was painful. There was crying. I went through it. And I haven't had to grieve in anything like that at all since then. The love remains, uh, and I think it. I'm more living in the world as it is. Life is vulnerable. I'm not trying to frighten us. It's just that the degree to which we can get comfortable with that, we can really live. Okay. When it went really, when, we came, when it came to the point where that learning happened, there was no Larry doing the learning. That's the best I can do. I'm not saying I'm some big enlightened guy at all, but at least for a certain period of time, there was just red-hot awareness, and the awareness was taken right into the fact of vulnerability, and you can't count on the notions that the mind spins out, whether they're superstitions or teachings or great masters reassure us, everything is fine. Uh, and I realized, wow, each one of us is on our own, and we, this is what the Buddha meant by be a, a light unto yourself. We have no choice. If you, that's, the, that's the refuge that I was getting at the other evening. It's in us. Every one of us has this refuge. Uh, it's here, right now. Okay, um, how to get there? Uh, let's, uh, now, that happened on a retreat and the carryover into daily life was noticeable for me. My life was different. Okay. The kinds of learning that we do here, everyone's learned something different this whole time that we've been here. But when you get home, I hope that the attitude comes with you of seeing, it's what the Chinese call the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. It's all of it. Now, the sitting practice, I'd like to go, go into that. I want to relate the sitting practice with the daily life part. The second set of instructions, I don't know, it seems now like years ago, but it was just probably a couple of days ago. Um, to just sit, to just be with everything just as it is, no agenda, free attention, open awareness. I hope everyone... Okay. For me, the mandate for that practice and the instructions as to how to carry it out, come from uh, a fairly short sutra of the Buddha called the Bhaya Sutta, it's, uh, which means about Bhaya, this matter of Bhaya. Bhaya, uh, uh, which means the bark-clad one, was a, was a very, very famous teacher in India, and he had huge numbers of students, was honored, uh, 
if you've been to India, you know that teachers can be uh, better than rock stars. Maybe not quite that far, but they, people go... Yeah. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning the background, because it's valuable for us. In spite of this, Baya had doubts. He got all this adulation, and to his credit, had the uh, humility and the openness to say, am I really as good as all this? You know, all these people are looking at me this way? Uh, and then he was visited by... Uh, as the story goes, uh, a, a woman relative who was a deva now and who uh, loved him and took pity on him and said, Bayu, you're not. Not only are you not an arhant, which is a high level in this tradition, uh, you're not even on the path, you're not even going in the right direction. <laughs> okay. Baya packed up and immediately he said, well, who, who can help me? Is there anyone who is a genuine arhant? said, there is the Buddha, of course. So he goes, comes to the Buddha, and uh, I'll skip and get right to the point. He, he uh, pleads with the Buddha. The Buddha is on alms round, refuses to give him the teaching, and Vaya says, please. And as the stories often go, three times, finally the Buddha says yes. <laughs> okay. uh, and he, the reason he gives is that uh, you're vulnerable, I'm vulnerable, uh, I, the sooner I know, the better, because we don't know how much longer we have. So the Buddha gives him this teaching. Then Baya, uh, I'm going to read it slowly, please. It's, uh, the language is a little perhaps not so smooth, but uh, please try to receive it. Then Baya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will only be, and then he repeats it, and goes into, and finally says, I'm skipping a lot, this, just this, is the end of suffering. Okay. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, in terms, let me put it in a somewhat different uh, language. In terms of, let's say, th- thoughts, they're just thoughts. Sights are sights. Sounds are sounds. Um, feelings are feelings. Everything is exactly what it is. Now you might say, well, sure. So uh, the problem is, uh, what he's suggesting to buy is don't, don't add anything extra onto that. Everything is exactly what it is, period. Well, what do we add onto it? Well, uh, we, uh, I think, uh, we identify with it. This term I think you all know. And we, by, by doing that, we define ourselves by the experience we have. Now, all of you have been in groups every day, or you've all had lots of groups. There's so much of what was going on, uh, let's say doubt. That was a big one. Many people had doubts about themselves. Okay. Thoughts would come through the mind. Uh, a doubt is just a doubt. It's what it is. It's exactly what it is. You're no good. You'll never be any good. This practice, you're hopeless. Forget about it. 
Okay? If you uh, catch on to that, that means you're defining yourself by that experience. You make, I'm no good. You make, I'll never be any good. So, in short, what this teaching is saying is, Baya, don't make anything. Everything is just what it is. The thought is saying, you're no good. Wisdom is hearing it as just that. It's just a thought. You're no good. Okay, no problem. But that isn't what happens. Uh, We grasp onto it. Now, the practice is, this seemingly innocuous, just sit there and watch the flow. Well, in order to do that, what you're practicing is this. I don't know if you realize that, but that's what you're practicing. Uh, uh, As you just enjoy the show. You watch all these different representations come through. Pictures and words telling you who you are, telling you who you used to be, telling you who you're going to be, telling you what is possible, what's impossible. Uh, It's endless. The mind is constantly talking to itself, trying to reassure it, tearing itself down, building itself up, presenting itself uh, to to rehearsing what it's going to say to this person, uh, whether it's the the group or on Monday when you go back to work. Uh, It's ongoing. Once I uh, walked through Harvard Yard in Cambridge, and a student from Cambridge Insight Meditation Center was coming right towards me on the same path, and she didn't see me. I saw her, and she was talking to herself, literally really talking to herself. Okay. Uh, and then she came up close and looked up at me and was very embarrassed. And I tried to soften a bit, by saying, she said, oh, you saw me talking to myself. (laughs) So I said, I did, but you're more honest than I am because I was doing it too, but pretending to, I was just walking, doing it without, you know, you're more open about it. Okay, and and then as I passed her, she smiled, it eased it a little bit, and then as I passed her, I thought, I thought, well, this is nice. I'm being a nice guy, easing her burden a little. Then I realized, but it's true. <laughs> That's what I was doing. I was talking to myself. Okay. So I met an honest human being. Okay. Um, here, what's happening is we're watching it. We're listening in on it. We're eavesdropping on our own mind. Wow. <laughs> and we're seeing how, what, how the mind lives, what it does. Repeats itself endlessly over and over and over. Uh, vows that it's made 10 years ago, it still hasn't acted on them. I'm going to only have one cupcake and one muffin a week, you know. Okay. That's mine. <laughs> So what happens is friends always bring me muffins. <laughs> and I flunked the test. Okay. Um, so what, we, what this practice is, is uh, and of course it requires the mind to be fairly calm and steady and to be with what is there simply because it is there. Drop all of the plans for what you came here for to solve this issue and work through that and uh, let it all go. Don't be so purposive. Uh, Vipassana is at its best when you don't have it earmarked for some specific project. You know, wh- why you came up here. Um, 
I got some very good teaching from, in the, there's a certain tradition in Japan where uh, it, it, one of the masters is asked, um, it's a lineage that I happen to like very much, um, about years and years of this practice of what value was. I'm going to paraphrase this. And he said, oh, um, uh, not very much value. I, I, um, on my, when I die, I hope they put, here lies uh, Zen Master X. Wasted his whole life on the cushion. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then he put it another way, which was, for those of you who knew, this might be confusing. Actually, for those of us who are not new at it, he said, um, uh, doing this practice uh, is uh, worthless. There's no practical value in it. It's pointless. It's worthless. But if you don't do this worthless practice, your life will be worthless. What he was trying to do is wean us from this utilitarian approach where we're doing everything in order to get something else. Uh, the truth is it's very powerful if you can stop trying to make it be powerful. Uh, it will, because what happens, let's say this practice of choice, choiceless awareness, sitting and watching all the different mind states come and go, the different conditions of the body. The body hurts, then the mind comes in, feels sorry for itself, self-pity. It's not only that my knee hurt, then the knee hurts. That's bad enough. Then it becomes my knee, the most important knee in the entire universe. <laughs> and then something happens that turns into torment. If it was just me, it would be bad enough. Okay. And so as you get the knack of this, just as uh, Munindraji used to say, Michael and I had him as a teacher, uh, just sit back and enjoy the show. Well, it takes a while to be able to do that. It is the greatest show on earth. Your mind and my mind. Not my mind for you. Your mind for you. Uh, and what you're doing, if you're able to watch it all arise and pass away, it means you're not nourishing this sense of me. You're not defining yourself by your experience. And what happens is the thoughts and the emotions do their thing, they do their dance, they express themselves, and then they expire. They're gone. So letting go is really more like letting be. It's a synonym. Let it all be. Uh, and that's what we're learning how to do, little by little. Now, if, you can, if you've had a glimpse of this, perhaps you've seen that what happens quite naturally is the mind empties itself of this content. To me, it's, it, it's mysterious, but it seems to be natural. It, this approach is relaxing our way into freedom. It's not breaking the door down. We're discovering there is no door. We have the key, and the key is just to look, to look at our experience that is happening right here, right now, and see it for what it is. In reference to the scene, there's just the scene in reference to etc. Uh, as the mind starts emptying itself, I'm with it tonight, I know it's 8 o'clock. As the mind starts emptying itself, you find yourself in silence. You, find the, you enter another dimension of mind. Uh, it's not that you're trying to get quiet, as some of you may. We give you new forms of suffering that you didn't have before you got here. <laughs> uh, you have enough of your own, and then, uh, and then it's the silent mind. You have to be at peace. And then, we, and then when we're not at peace, 
I've been here for three days. I'm still not at peace. So now you're suffering because of that. You weren't even caring about peace. <laughs> you just wanted a promotion. You wanted to make a connection with this other person to get a relationship going. You wanted a new house. Now someone says, no, the, really, the Buddha was one who was totally at peace. Oh, okay. The ego is shameless. Whatever you say you want, I want it. It'll go right after it. It doesn't care as long as it's the star. It does not care what you want. It'll, give, it'll go after it. Fine. You want uh, to be nothing? Because that's what this leads to. And this is what I'm trying to get at with self-knowing. At a certain point, uh, what self-knowing is to begin with is uh, if, we would have, if we were asked a question, what you're finding out, you could put it into words, but they would be representations, notions about ourselves. I'm an untrustworthy, I'm an untrusting person, or untrust, whatever the word. Uh, I'm a, a kind person. I'm a this, I'm a that. Uh, they're all notions, representations, the way a photograph is a representation of a real person. It's not the person. It's a facsimile of the person. And so we're, and we get identified with all these, these are all stitched together by thoughts. Creates this sense of me, the self. When you start to look, it all starts to come apart. It isn't a solid, it's empty. Empty of what? Empty of this uh, ferocious attachment to me and mine. This is my knee, this is my retreat, this is my, everything is me or mine. Okay? Uh, if you're really attending, that kind of, uh, there's just seeing. Uh, when I was really attending to the grieving, there was that. It was pure. There was just seeing. Before that, there was Larry meditating very much, and there was some self-pity in there. That's all right. I felt my daddy is not here, and I felt that's all right. I don't mean to demean that. But uh, the next step, that all went by the boards, and it was just clear seeing, and everything was just what it was. Vulnerability was vulnerability. Okay, now that's the sitting practice. And sometimes people ask, that's all well and good. Um, but of what practical value it is? It's nice when you're sitting, uh, and it seems kind of passive, uh, where you just sit there and uh, allow everything, and then uh, the art of receiving it. But life is different. You have to do things and make decisions and be proactive and um, so I see this as useful when you're on the cushion, but of what possible value could it be when you're off the cushion or when we're back home? Tremendous. A few. We don't have time to go. One is as the mind becomes more and more silent, the practice shifts, and the practice is about living in that silence. It's resting there. And what Michael referred to as intelligence the other day, there's an organic intelligence that as we soak like in a hot tub, in the silence. There's no we, but how, I, the language, uh, you, there's a resting in it. There's a being, the silence. And that silence can be vast. There's no boundary. And even if you just get a glimpse of it, just for a little while, uh, the major healing, I believe, goes on in that silence. The, the compassion that grows out of it, it's not cultivated. And the intelligence that we're pointing at is something like this. When more and more you're living from the quiet mind rather than the reactive mind, which is just our past, 
constantly judging what's happening based on our past conditioning. It's like life touches this silence and it stimulates a kind of intelligence that is not one plus one. It's not rational. Rational is good too. Don't get rid of that. This is different. And I can't explain it. I wouldn't even try. But something happens. Life touches that, whether you want to call it God or the Buddha or original nature, Buddha nature, whatever you like. And you, you come out of the, you're not in there maybe no longer than uh, two minutes or a minute. Somehow you find out that you're kinder, you're uh, more sensitive, uh, you're clearer, without even trying. Metta is, where do all this love come from? I haven't been formally doing metta. So that is part of why uh, we do this. We're, We're coming to the original mind, whether you call it Buddha nature, original nature, original mind. There's so many names for it. It, There's no name. It's not a name, obviously. It's a play. It's not even a place. But it's it's real. Um, uh, In the teachings, that's when Ajahn Chah a great forest master says, be the knowing. Be that, that's the knowing. That, the, that, that's awareness itself. And finally, that's who we are. We are awareness. And that's not an object, and it's not a representation. Uh, before coming up here, I just saw a snippets towards the end of an old film from the 50s, if I can remember it. Um, it's called The Three Faces of Eve, if anyone ever saw it. A person has multiple personality. And at the end, she gets uh, cured, healed. And then she says, you know, happily, they're all gone. And all that's left is me. I mean, happily, what's left is me. Um, Now, I don't know if her me is the me we're talking about. (laughs) But uh, it's uh, we have to actively uh, participate in our own letting go, our own giving up, our own loss. Because what we, the ego is precious to us. We're letting go of all kinds of identities that we've worked for hundreds of years. Now I'm a great oral surgeon. Get back, finish up with him. <laughs> um, that's all gone. You do oral surgery, and hopefully beautifully. Uh, but in a profound way, what all this leads to is the mind becomes profoundly aware of itself. And whatever name you want to give to that, fine. That's why we go through all this hard work. And even a little glimpse of it makes life, it restores wonder to life. That comes even earlier. Just those, the silences that, that you, you feel on a retreat. That's all uh, rejuvenating. Uh, we, we, we see that the grass is green when it will be. Uh, we see just things in their elementary form, and they don't need anything else other than what they are to be uh, beautiful. Same with people. We start seeing people not through a conceptual mind. If you've been living with someone for a long time, you have all these notions about who they are and notions about who you are. This practice is emptying of all that. We're not a notion. We're not an idea. Uh, Bodhidharma uh, uh, brought the teachings to China from India. 
And he was challenged by uh, the emperor, at first just questioned. Uh, at the time, China had Buddhism, but it was mainly scholastic and ceremonial. And there was very, very, very little inner work. Uh, meditation. And uh, he asked him a number of questions, all of which uh, we asked him, uh, I've been doing all kinds of uh, good works, charity, uh, help, paying for monasteries and monks and all that. And he wanted some kind of pat on the back. And Bodhidharma being a genuine master, he said, of what value is that? And he said, none, no value. You know, the emperor was thrown. Uh, and then he said, okay, my next question is about uh, the holy dharma. What is the holy? He said, there's nothing holy. He said, just vast emptiness. And the emperor was now perturbed. Who is it that's not answering the questions the way I want them answered? Who, who, who are you? And Bodhidharma uh, says, to me it's very beautiful, this is the translation I prefer. He says, I have no idea. <laughs> and it's not that he had a lobotomy <laughs> or amnesia or post-traumatic stress. He's not an idea. Can I have a few moments of silence, please? Let's do a bit of walking, walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.